going to read from Hebrews uh, chapter 7. And the reading is going to start at verse 23. Now there have been many priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who had been made perfect forever. Thanks be to God for his word. Um, and now Richard uh, is going to come and uh, lead us uh, and bring God's word to us. Um, I love the fact that he's done as, down as a guest preacher, but he obviously is <laughs> very much part of our congregation, and we welcome him to preach this morning. Good morning. A bit of green light here, so hopefully you can all hear me. I shall speak up. Hello. <laughs> Was, um, preacher, preacher, I came and just stood up to preach once, and the little child was sitting with his mum watching as the preacher opened the Bible and said, what does that mean, mum? Because it means he's going, to, he's, he's going to preach from the word of God, and then he gets his notes, and what does that mean, mum? Says that means he's been preparing what he's going to say, and he's going to share with the congregation what he has for us. And then he got his watch, and he put it there. He said, what does that mean, mum? Nothing at all. not going to keep you long let's pray thank you father god for your faithfulness your steadfastness and your truth i pray god that this time is profitable in your sight that you can draw straight lines with this crooked stick i ask in jesus name for your glory amen i want to look at this subject i'm not going to go sort of um deep into the role of the old testament priest and uh, the, how Melchizedek fits into all that, uh, that, that's another subject. What we're looking at here and what we've got here, uh, looking in chapter 7, it talks of Jesus' priesthood. Now, these days, the idea of having a priest seems a bit odd. And, unless you go to a church where you have someone whose office is priest, and you think, well, why would we need a priest? The role of a priest is, is like a go-between an interface, someone to join two parties. And in this context, uh, the priest in the Old Testament would be the go-between between God and man. And as was read in the text, that priest has to go through an awful lot of uh, process, of ceremony to be clean, so that when that priest comes to God, then he's not killed because of his own sin. Now, to look at the priesthood of Jesus and what it is that makes him a priest and what it is that makes him a good priest may seem very academic and theoretical. What do we want to talk about that for? But it matters to us a lot. And what I want to look at is why this matters. 
because there are teachings coming into the church that are trying to diminish Jesus, and there are people who don't understand what Jesus has come to do. There are people who still think that they can't become Christians because they need to make themselves right first. I, I once have sorted my life out, then I'll start going to church. Once I've got my th- my, everything together, then I'll, start, I'll become a Christian. But that's not how it works. You come to Jesus as you are. That's the gospel. You come to Jesus as you are. You don't stay as you are, but you come as you are, and he does the rest. So the, the, the truth in these verses, they impact our assurance in the faith. We're Christians. Many of us here are Christians. Maybe there are some who aren't. But those of us who are Christians have those times. Am I really a Christian? You know, am I good enough to stay a Christian? Have I memorized enough of the Bible to be a Christian? You know, we we set these rules for ourselves that aren't in the Bible. Our assurance is in here. The basis for our faith is in here. Why would you believe in him? The confidence we have that God really has forgiven us is here. And the peace of knowing that God has forgiven us though we are still imperfect. I think very often we wouldn't find it so difficult to believe that God had forgiven us if we were able from that point on to never sin again. But the problem we have is that once we'd forgiven, we still sin. We still mess up. We still do things that breaks God's commands. So how does that fit in? Surely God's not there thinking, oh, I can't believe I saved Richard. Look at him. Oh, I'm unsaving him. I'm unsaving him. Deleting that file. He's unsaved. No, because there's assurances in this text. And it starts off talking about how insecure the original system was. It was set in stone. The law of God is not faulty in any way. It wasn't a case of God has said something, but you regretted giving the law. God's law was clear and set in stone. But the problem we have is that those priests kept dying. Oh, that's awful, isn't it? People keep dying. But that's what they do. And so when one dies, they have to have another one. And my brother here is wearing a Doctor Who t-shirt. And what happens with Doctor Who when one actor wants to stop? They have to get another one in, don't they? And then another one, and then another one. And this is what was happening with the priests. Many priests were needed because they kept dying. And with that comes inconsistencies. Because you could have a good priest, then you could have a bad priest. Some priests in the Old Testament, if you read First Samuel, there were some pretty awful priests there. There were priests who made people despise God's law. And by despise, I mean think nothing of it. Like, who cares? You know, it's like, yeah, we're supposed to sacrifice to God. Oh, sacrifice to God. But those priests there didn't make any difference. And that's the way those priests were. Then you might have a good priest who was, who was all tidy and everything, and he did what he, was, what he was supposed to do. But what we have here is that Jesus is a priest who goes on forever. That is, he lives forever, so he's not going to be giving up his priesthood anytime soon because he's holding on to that forever. And a good question to ask whenever someone is preaching or whenever you're reading a bit from the Bible, saying, so what? So, you know, so he's a priest forever. So what? Have you ever ha- had a really bad line manager? You've ever worked for a line manager or a middle manager who promised to have your back when he or she has to go to speak with other management on your behalf? If your lack of trust is well-founded, you may find that you have a terribly, you've been terribly misrepresented by your manager before the upper management, and that upper management now think that you're an absolute doofus who needs to be kicked out for being bone lazy, even though you've worked really hard, but that's the representation you've had. 
they think that you're the worst because the person representing you misrepresented you. Or maybe your line manager comes back and tells you that upper management is furious with you and you're lucky to be still with the job, whereas the reality is that upper management is really pleased with what you've done, but your manager's taken all the credit. Now, clearly, Jesus is not middle management. I'm not trying to say that. If anything, he's the business owner along with two other co-equal, co-eternal partners. But what we have in Jesus is someone who, as our priest, represents us before the Father, and he represents the Father to us. And he does it purely, he does it perfectly, he does it full of grace. Ah, you thought it was going for all peas then, it's pure, perfect. And, uh, full of grace, full of truth, full of mercy, full of love. Because of his role in this way, when God sees us, he sees the goodness, righteousness, and innocence of Jesus. Now, that can blow our mind because I know that I'm not all those wonderful things, but Jesus is. And what the Bible tells me is that Jesus is my righteousness. And Jesus to us is God with us, Emmanuel. See, Christmas is coming. It's not long. It's on its way. Jesus is God with us in grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And Jesus is here for keeps. And so we're going to look at what this means to us, that we have such an excellent priest. Again, so what? We've got a great priest. Wow, thanks. Why should it make us glad? Very often, when I find myself drifting or having a really bad day and I've taken my eyes off the Lord, it's because I've, I've forgotten these truths that hold, hold me on, that hold on the joy that we have of knowing who Jesus is. Why on earth should it make us glad? Why on earth should it make us feel anything? Now, verse 25 says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The, the, the translation that Rosie read saved completely. Similar concept. There's a, there's a wholeness to it. There's a fullness to it. It's not flimsy. It's not something that's going to give up. You see, Jesus always lives. Jesus will never die. And, as, and that's the kind of intercessor. That's the kind of priest we have. The person who is representing you before God will never die. And he does it honestly and purely. Look at this. Therefore, he is able to save forever, completely. This doesn't mean that Jesus makes it possible that we could be saved forever. Rather, the, the assurance is this, Jesus has saved us. How do we know what he's able to? Have you ever, you ever gone, to, to, gone to a garage and, and uh, they say, uh, can you fix the car? Yeah. Will, will you fix it then, please? There's always that clown in the office. Oh, have you got a pen I can borrow? Yeah. Can I borrow it then, please? You know, Jesus isn't playing games with us. If Jesus is able to fix is able to save us forever, this, this verse is telling us he has done it. If you are a Christian, you are saved completely. There's nothing left. You might think there's bits left. You think of your life and how you've still got struggles and how you're still battling with sin, the way that you're failing God. And there's still something left for Jesus to do. That's the sanctification process, but as far as you being saved is concerned, that is complete. That is complete. He has saved us completely forever. Jesus saves you by his power, not yours. This is such a wonderful thing about the gospel, that we are saved by his power, not our own, because there are very powerful people who miss the gospel. There were very powerful people in Jesus' time who missed the gospel because they thought that their power was sufficient. 
but the humble, the poor, the weak, the feeble, the disenfranchised. They're the ones who grasp the gospel because they know they've got no power and they rest on the power of Jesus. The humble trust in Jesus and the work that he does. But it says, if we go on, it says we're drawing near to God. Jesus is the means by which we draw near to God. Not only did the Father send the Son to die for our sins, but it's because of the Father drawing us that we do draw near to God in the first place. Because of what God has done, we come to Jesus who brings us to the Father. It says in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. And here is our security, John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up the last day. Jesus has saved you. Jesus died for your sins. When he died, he said, it's finished. The work is done. Well, except for maybe that person who's on the front row because they got a bit more work that they need to do. On the no, it's done. The work is done. Jesus is the means by which we draw near to God. Many of you here who are Christians, you will have a, have a story of how you were drawn to Jesus. Maybe it was in, in a flash, just like that. You came to church one day or someone shared the gospel with you and it just made perfect sense straight away. Boom, you're a Christian. Others, it's taken longer. Others, maybe it took a couple of years, a couple of decades even. And as you look back, you can see how God is probing, prodding you there pushing you there and just doing little things drawing you ever so slowly until after 20 30 years maybe of drawing your spirit is born again by god's spirit because of the work that he's done and this is what jesus came to do jesus said i am the way the truth and the life no one has a really nice time in church except by me no no one gets to feel like they really belong except by me no no one gets to feel like they love. No, all those things can be built in and, ex and experienced by Christians. But nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's what he's come to do, to bring us to the Father, to be reconciled to God, where there was a big problem, big issue of sin between God and us. Jesus has come to bring us back to that God. And the cry of Paul in 2 Corinthians, he said, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So this is what God wants for us, that we would be reconciled back to him. Maybe you'll have a yacht one day. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have a really nice car one day. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have a really nice house one day. Maybe you won't. Maybe your bank account is bulging at the seams. Maybe it's anemic and it looks like it needs to be inflated, like a, like a dead lilo. But I'll tell you what. You've got Jesus. And you've been reconciled to God. And that is the goal. That we should be reconciled to our Father, from whom we've been estranged. And he goes on to say in verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have a high priest. Now that's an interesting phrase, or does it seem right? It was fitting, I love that phrase. God saw it was fitting that we should have a high priest like Jesus. That is, it's proper, it was right. God was looking at us, looking at our situation and said, what would be good for them is a high priest to go between them and me. That's what, I th that's what needs to be done. That is, in God's sight, it was right that we should be able to draw near to him. That's the thinking process. 
God knew that we can't draw near to him. Any, any, any way that we could would have burned us up. But God saw that it was right that we should be able to draw near to him. Isn't this just a wonderful truth that God looked at us in our misery and decay and concluded that the best thing for us wasn't a good telling off, wasn't a good shellacking, wasn't a good being wiped off the planet and disintegrated, but rather to be in a relationship with him. Isn't that wonderful? How often do we look at someone where we've got that division and what we think they need is a good hiding? But God, what they need is a saviour. What they need is someone to reach down to them because they can't reach up. Something completely out of our reach, something completely beyond what we deserve, yet in God's sight, it wasn't a case of, oh, I don't really want to do this, but I suppose if I, if I want to be a, be, be a good God, if I do No, it seemed right to him. And so it was right to give us this kind of a high priest. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So we're now going to look at this kind of high priest that God saw was fitting for us. If someone were to, if I went with someone and someone said, what you need is a good hiding, well, I'd be running away. But we've been told what we need is someone who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. As we go through these qualities, think about this. This is what we need. And the first thing we've told is that he's holy. Holy, sometimes we can, we can perceive holy as just being really, really, really good. But it actually means separated. Separated for God. Set apart for God. We're holy to God. We're commanded to be holy. Separated to God as opposed to belonging to this world and being obsessed with the things of this world. Jesus was in this world living here with people, but he was always and only saying and doing what he heard the Father saying and what he saw the Father doing. He was holy. He lived among us and he was holy. Jesus came in the form of a man and took the position of a slave, but he was always God in human form. We are very much of this world. If we look at our lives, I'm embarrassed by the things that concern my mind. How's the batteries in my portable computer doing? You know, that, that stupid things that occupy. Well, I'm trying to pray, and suddenly something comes into my mind that I lock the car door. I'm, I'm, I'm naturally obsessed with the things. And I walked to church, and I'm concerned about the car door. Well, it's crazy. But he was so focused and holy, totally to God, separated to God. We are necessarily concerned with the things of this world. But we have in Jesus... Someone in heaven, a man who is interceding for us, sitting on the right hand of God, he is our holiness. When someone is representing you and me before God, God's not saying, sorry, humans aren't holy enough, because our representative is holy. He's also innocent. And he's blameless under the law. God gave his law showing who he is. Breaking God's law says that who he is doesn't rank that high in our priorities. Yes, God, I know that you said I mustn't do that, but to be honest, I really want to do it. So what I want is a bit more important than what you said. Punishment for breaking the law is nothing new. Yet Jesus was innocent. There's not a word that can be said against the life that Jesus lived. Not a word. But that isn't our story. We've broken all of God's commandments. 
you've broken all, whether you're a Christian or not, you've broken all of God's commandments. You would have said, no, I haven't. I haven't done those. And there's some of those I, mean, I know I haven't broken. But if I just go a quick summary of the ones I can remember now, because when, once, on, on, once I'm doing the lecture, if my mind goes blank. I've had things in my life more important than God. I'll be honest, I've had that. That's idolatry. Have I misused God's name? That's an area where I've tried to be really careful, but then I've stood as a Christian in a situation and done the wrong thing, and I've sullied God's name there. So using God's name in vain there, maybe? I've never lusted after, I've never committed adultery. I mean, I've never, ever committed adultery. But Jesus said, if I've ever lusted after someone, I have in my heart. But I've not killed anyone. I'm sure that no one here has killed anyone. If you have, you can still be forgiven, seriously. But you think, oh, I've never killed anyone. But Jesus said, if I hate someone, if I've called them, you know, what is empty-headed? You think that's, that's a common thing. I say that to all sorts of people. Jesus said, if I hate someone, I've committed murder in my heart. Oh, but I'm not covetous. I've never coveted anything except for some really nice cars that I've seen and some f nice phones I've seen people handling and stuff like that. I've, I've, I've never coveted. And the thing is, if the, I, these are in the top 10, and I've broken them all. And I dare say, you've broken them all. If God's a good judge, how is he going to find me? He's, he's going to say, well, Richard, don't worry about it. It's okay, don't worry, because I'm gracious, so don't worry about it. Well, what kind of God is that? He's unreliable. You don't know where you stand with him. This is a God who knows who I am. But you know what? We have in heaven someone, a man, who is interceding for us and sitting at the right hand of God. He is our innocence. If you are a Christian, he is your innocence. He's undefiled. No stain from the humanity with which he dwelt. We carry every day the defilements of our culture, of our nature, of all sorts of things you pick up in life. There are often times when I'm sat in church and someone or something may happen and my initial reaction is, oh, I don't know about that. And then I've got to correct myself and say, well, this isn't a scriptural issue. This is a Richard's taste issue. And Sarah will tell you, I have no taste. We can carry things on us that are, that's like baggage that can affect our thinking, that can affect our interactions and our relationships, which need to be trimmed off and cut off. And that's the work of sanctification as we grow in grace, as we grow in Jesus. But to be clear, we are not guilty of Adam eating the fruit. God is not going to point at you and say, you are guilty of eating that fruit. That's Adam's guilt. Our parents' sins don't become our sins. What we've inherited from our parents is our sinful nature. We've not inherited the guilt of their sins. We're guilty of our own sins. We're not pure. We're impure. But we have Jesus in Jesus, someone in heaven, a man who is interceding for us and sitting at the right hand of God. He is our purity. Now, this, with regard to this notion that we are not guilty of our parents' sins and should therefore not be expected to repent of our parents' sins, but doesn't God say that he will visit the sins of the parents on their children for multiple generations? There is that. It's in the commandments. It's actually one of the, one of the Ten Commandments regarding idolatry. 
God says, You shall not worship them, the idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. And for, for a very long time, there have been traditions of church that say, that means if your parents committed a certain sin, then you're guilty of that certain sin. And unless you deal with it, then your children will be guilty of that certain sin. And so on. Children raised in a home where God's laws are routinely ignored and trampled on will learn to do that themselves. What this means is that these children will grow up guilty, therefore, not of their parents' sins, but of their own, which they learned from their parents. So their parents' sins are being learned by the children. And then the children will be visited on for the sins that they've got, which they learn from their parents. Because this is what it says in Ezekiel. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers ate the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are on edge? What that means is, our fathers sins, and now we're having to face the punishment. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all sins, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son, is mine. The soul whose sins shall die. And in Deuteronomy 24, 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. It's also important to note that Jesus was undefiled. He did not sin. He's not like us. He did not sin. He was not stained by sin, unlike us who are stained by sin. The rock, it said in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. We're not perfect. We're not, we're not just. We're not faithful, and we are often unjust. We are often unrighteous, but Jesus is all those good things. He is perfect. He is just. He is faithful. He is righteous. He has never needed to repent like us. He has never changed or needed to change. He has never had to withdraw a statement or undo an action like us. I think that's really important. There are some things which we can talk about in Christian circles which don't affect salvation and which we can disagree on. The one thing that I'm, I feel really strongly about and I believe that it really matters is that Jesus did not sin. About three or four times I've heard the notion that Jesus had to repent. One of them being the story of when the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus and asked, would you please deliver my daughter of her demon? And Jesus said, is it right to take the bread that belongs to the children and feed it to the dogs? And the woman says, well, even the dogs need the crumbs from the children's table. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well and your daughter is healed. And I've heard a few times from a number of places, it seems to be gathering momentum that at that point, Jesus changed his mind. At that point, Jesus had to learn that he was being racist and that he shouldn't have said that. And that obviously these days, if Jesus had tweeted that, he'd have been cancelled for it. But what we see there, and I'm not going to go deep into that, but this is just an example I've heard so often. I want to mention it to set the record straight. Jesus did not sin. Jesus did not say those words and think, oh, I shouldn't have put it like that. Let me say it another way. What Jesus did there was show the Jews around, the, around him there 
here's a Gentile who's outside of the covenant, and yet this Gentile has received favor from God, not by keeping the law, but by having faith in the one the Father has sent. This woman is an example to all of you who, are, who take pride in who you are and your identity as Jews, because when Jesus said you are giving food to the dogs, they might have all been there going, oh yeah, dogs, yeah, that's right, you see, that's right, yeah, not like us, no, I'm not, I'm not a dog. And he said, but she had faith that you did not have. And God has put that in her. She's received from God something you've not received yet because she's got faith. Jesus did not sin. He never sinned. Because this is, this is so important. Jesus is perfect and has always been perfect. He is God. Note the severity of this. Because if we have a Savior who is racist, if we have a Savior who has in any way sinned, if we have a faulty Savior, we have a faulty salvation. If Jesus was flawed, we can go home now. Seriously. Because Jesus, by necessity, is without blemish. He is the perfect, pure Lamb of God. Jesus has never had to repent of anything that he said or did. We are still, we do that. I'm often having to take back words I've said. And maybe you are as well. You know, Jesus is your purity. He is the one who didn't have to do that, so that he's the one who represents you and has set that standard and is that standard for you. Now, here's one that made me furrow my brow to make it sound awfully dramatic. Jesus is separate from sinners. Oh, I'm not sure that's right. I'm honest, in the Bible, of course it's right. Is my understanding that's wrong? We might say Jesus ate with sinners as though those, these theoretical sinners, I love it when people say that. Oh, but Jesus ate with sinners. Yeah, he ate with those sinners. He doesn't eat with people like me. He eats with, you know, like, I'm the, I'm the sinner that he would have eaten with. And she said, well, Jesus loves the unlovely. Who are you to say, the, the, who's the unlovely? No, Jesus, oh, Jesus, don't worry you. Jesus loves the unlovely. You're all right. Well, what am I saying? I'm saying you're unlovely. That's wrong. Jesus loves us all. We're all unlovely in our sin. But Jesus loves us. But there are a few points to note here about Jesus. If you don't trust Jesus today, you are a sinner separate from Jesus today. Okay, so what, what, we, what we know from this passage so far, he's separate from sinners. If you don't trust him today, you are separate from Jesus today. Jesus is as separate from sinners as is God. Jesus is God. When sinners come to Jesus, we, not them, we are cleansed and though we still sin, we are at peace with God through Jesus. Jesus has never joined sinners in their sin to take part in their sin. Jesus ate with sinners. He identified with them. He let the world know, these are the people I've come to save. These are the people that God loves. He never took part in the sin of the sinners. He never took part in our sin. Jesus has come to rescue sinners, to bring us to the Father through his sin-cleansing death. But the key thing to note here is that Jesus has no sin nature. We do, and never has death been so much fun. If you're honest about sin, if you're honest about that, that sinful nature that we're battling every day, it is fun if you look at it the wrong way. It's so much. I remember being, uh, when I was young, very flippant, more flippant than I am now, and I was in the service, and the preacher was going on about what all the sinners are doing that night. It was just a Saturday night. It was in my stake. And the preacher was going on about what they were doing. They're out, they're dancing, they're carousing, they're this, they're that. And I said to my friend, this sounds great. 
I said, what are you doing here? You should be over there. The sinful nature is so, can be so instant, so comforting in our own strength. But Jesus came as one of us. He lived among us as one of us. Yet the difference between him and every other person on earth is beyond astronomical. Jesus came to do what we could not do, which is brilliant because Jesus came to do what we had to do, but we couldn't do it. We still carry around our sinful natures against which our reborn spirits wrestle. If you've got that fight, if you've got that thing going on inside of you, I wish I didn't do that. If you've got that fight, that's a good sign. The bad sign is when you've made peace with the enemy, and it's all right. But we have in Jesus someone in heaven, a man who is interceding for us, and sitting on the right hand of God, he is your godliness. He's exalted above the heavens. That is, he's, he's situated in the actual, literal throne room of heaven. When the priests served the Old Testament, whether in the tabernacle, that's the big tent they had, or the temple in Jerusalem, they were working in a building designed as a copy of what was in heaven. God gave them the instructions, right, I want to build these, these strict instructions, and you've got to measure it precisely. I want to build that, and they built it, and they had the outer court, they had the, the holies, the holy of holies, and all that. He said, right, this is a copy of what's in heaven, where I am. As such, the high priest could only enter into what was a copy of the very presence of God in the temple. And only once a year, and only after going through all the cleansing to make him acceptable, he could go in. But what we have in Jesus is someone who isn't in a copy of God's throne room, but someone who is in the actual, real, literal throne room. You know, people today, they use the word literal all the time. Literally, all the time. But this is Jesus in literal heaven. This isn't in a metaverse where Jesus is wearing VR goggles to make him think he's there. Jesus is there. Right now, a human being, a man representing you and me today. Right now, there's someone there representing us. That's just awesome. That just makes you feel, oh, wow. He's there for me. He's there for you, representing you. And he's not there criticizing you, saying, oh, can you believe what Rosie did? I know. No. He's there representing us in his purity, in his innocence, in his holiness, in his righteousness, in everything that is his. It says in verse 25, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's a humbling thought, isn't it? That's your name, believer. Your name has been uttered in heaven. Your name has been uttered in heaven as Jesus has interceded for you in heaven. Talk of friends in high places. This is the best friend ever in the highest place there is. And he would see, to see, see it fitting that someone who is as scummy as me can be spoken well of in the throne room of heaven. I feel encouraged if my name has been mentioned in a board meeting in a positive light. Oh, wow, this is incomparable. This is incomparable. We've been mentioned. We've been defended. We've been, we've been represented in heaven. And he's interceding for us because we need an intercessor. This is who God has seen fitting to provide for us. We can go through life feeling the pressure of sin in our shoulders. But if your trust is in Jesus, 
you know that that has been dealt with because Jesus is your holiness. Jesus is your innocence. Jesus is your purity. Jesus is your godliness. But my friend, please hear this warning wherever you are, if you're in here or if you're on, on the telly or whatever, please understand that without Jesus, you have no holiness. You are not innocent. You are impure. You are not godly. You're ungodly. And I'm not saying that as if to say I'm the wonderful one who's achieved all this and you're not. That's where I was. Jesus died for the ungodly. That's why I'm glad that he's my savior because I need someone who's died for the ungodly and you need someone who has died for the ungodly. Someone who has died for people who have offended God on every level because God loves you and God's purpose is that you should know him and be reconciled to him. What's more, Jesus is alive. This is the good thing. Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus rose from the dead with victory. And that victory is because he is also our victory. In his victory, we have victory. So through the ongoing work of Jesus in our lives by his spirit, we grow in grace, grow in love of Jesus, grow in strength. This is what he's been calling us to. And it's because we have this high priest who hasn't just given us that bare pass mark. You've got this You've got the great C, so you can just pass. We've got Jesus' A star, 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 because he's given us what is his. Where Jesus is right now makes a difference to us, because where he is, we will be in heaven. It says about him who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is self-sufficient. Jesus needs no sacrifices for his sins. This means that he is good to stand up in heaven, and that's not going to wear out. At no point does anyone in heaven say, look, Jesus, you've been here a long time now. It's starting to wear a bit thin. You need to, you need to sacrifice now because you've just been here for ages. 2,000 years, in fact, thereabouts, give or take. The humans don't know, but we do. No. This means he is good to stand for us in heaven without wearing out. He is, now, here's, a, here's something. That's negative if we use it for us. Jesus is self-righteous. Now, what I mean by that is he doesn't need anybody else's righteousness. The reason Jesus needs no sacrifice is because he is truly and actually righteous in and of himself. That is, he is righteous with his own righteousness. He is right with his own rightness. He doesn't have to prepare a way before he goes to the throne room. He belongs there. Unlike us, who have no righteousness of our own, which is why we look so stupid when we act like we've got self-righteousness. All that is good is in Jesus. Literally, Jesus is good. He's self-sacrificing. And if anyone would ever have any doubts about the sacrificial system being fulfilled, our sacrifice wasn't even a bull or a ram. Our sacrifice was this priest. Our sacrifice is, was the Son of God. Our sacrifice is this Jesus. We often remark that our righteousness isn't works-based. And that's true, because that is, we don't carry out works in order to be considered good enough to be loved by God. But in a way, it is works-based, because we are totally dependent on the work that Jesus did. What he has done as our priest, as our representative, is to make us loved by God, to make us holy before God, righteous, set apart, all these wonderful things because he is our priest. And that's not even touching on the other way down, which would be another sermon, which, by, no, I haven't got that. Where we're not smited by God. 
that he would come down and seeing all the sin, it says, I think it's in Psalm 7, I always, I always forget which Psalm it says, but it says that God is angry every day. When he looks at the sin that's on the world, how can he not be? And yet, when he came down, he didn't smite us all. He came to die at the hands of people so that people could be saved and loved by him. Wow. It's not our works by which we are saved, but rather we are saved based on the works of Jesus, our priest, who paid with his own blood for our salvation and to bring us to God the Father. We need a priest. In our modern day, the thought of having a priest can seem a bit odd. And depending on your religion, I suppose. But our priest, we have one, is Jesus. Jesus is your priest if you are a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you need someone to come between you and God. You need someone to fill that space. Because at the moment, you're under wrath. You're under the law. And if you die in that state, you'll be judged according to that law. But if you put your trust in Jesus and trust that when he died, he died to take away your sins. He died to, to take your sins onto himself and he's put his goodness onto you, you are no longer condemned. You have been saved from God's wrath, Romans 5. You've been rescued. Please, this is a plea. Please, you need Jesus. You need this priest to represent you before God. Don't make the mistake of thinking you can represent yourself in court. You can't. You need Jesus who can stand there and say, I've paid for all Richard's sins or whatever you owe him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you saw it fitting to save us. That speaks more about you than anything else, that that's your heart rather than being desirous to destroy us in your love and in your grace, you were desirous to save us. Thank you, God. Thank you that we stand before you innocent and that we have such a faithful and wonderful representative in heaven for us. Oh God, help us to let that sink in. Help us to dwell on that, Lord, and to rest in you and to rest in the work that Jesus has done for us. That this religion is not one of do, but done. And Lord, I desperately pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, who hasn't got their faith in you. Lord God, I pray that that drawing that you have on their life would come close soon, that they would come to know you, put their trust in the one who died for them. Oh Lord, I pray, let us see that drawing come to a conclusion in people, Lord, as they come to know you, safe in you. I ask, Lord, in the name of Jesus, for your glory, for your honor, that in the ages to come you can demonstrate the riches of your grace in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.